Welcome to Chasing Dreams Podcast with Amy J. Amy believes that realizing a life without regrets is achieved by taking chances, chasing your dreams, making moves, and overcoming your doubts. The Chasing Dreams Podcast will help you overcome life's obstacles, believe in your potential, and inspire you to face your fears. And now here's the woman who is passionately pursuing her dreams, Amy J. Hey, Dream Chasers, this is Amy J, and thank you so much for tuning in to episode 245 of Chasing Dreams. Guys, today's episode is a bit different from what I typically do. It's not at all your typical episode. Today, I want to kind of give you guys a, a trigger warning also that I'll be talking about with my guest more about suicide prevention. So that is the topic, and I'm bringing on a mental health comedian, Frank King. He was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. He's fought a lifetime battle with major depressive disorder and chronic suicidality, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into six TED Talks to help others. And so I am thrilled to have him here to talk about this topic. It's an important one. It's mental health. You know how important that is to me. I think it's the beginning of conversations that need to happen more and more. And so I want to do that and have that conversation. That's what this one's about. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode of Chasing Dreams is sponsored by Ringtones by Amy J. As your personal hype man, Amy wants to provide you with the tools to help you along your dream chase. These new ringtones can be used as text alerts, ringtones, or alarms. The ringtones range from an alarm reminding you it's time to be intentional to an affirmation reminding you that you are enough. To learn more, please visit amyj21.com tones or search for Amy J under iTunes on your iOS device or the Tunes Ringtone Store. All right, folks, here's Frank. Hi, I'm Frank King, the mental health comedian, and I'm delighted to be here on, is it Chasing the Dream? Chasing Dreams. Chasing Dreams, yeah, because you know, I've been doing that since I was in fourth grade. Told my first joke. Twelfth grade did the talent show. Nobody ever done stand-up comedy before. Oh, my goodness. I did, and I won. Then my mom made me go to college. That's... (laughs) Yeah, she goes, I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. <laughs> so I went to Carolina, UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, actually, and then moved to San Diego. And there's a comedy store branch in San Diego in a little town called La Jolla, branch of the famous one on Sunset. And I, had, I was selling insurance at the time, married to my high school sweetheart at the time. And, and the comedy store opened Mike Nights, put the nail in both those coffins. Actually, my fourth TEDx talk is called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking, Mm -hmm. because I was married to a lovely young woman, my high school and college sweetheart, but we didn't belong together. We had nothing in common. But you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant. I wasn't. (laughs) So and I was selling insurance, which is her dream for me because all her family is in insurance. And I realized I was depressed and I realized I was actively suicidal. And if I didn't change something... I was going to kill myself sooner rather than later. And my dream was, what I felt my calling was, was stand-up comedy. And it hit me, wait a minute, I can divorce my wife, quit my insurance job, try stand-up comedy, which is where I think I belong. Mm -hmm. If it works, great. If it doesn't, heck, I can still kill myself. I mean, there are a few things more powerful on the planet than somebody with absolutely nothing to lose. Because if I stayed put, I'm done. Right, right. 
Fortunately, <laughs> it worked out. I said to my now second wife of 33 years, my girlfriend at the time, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. A professional. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figuring she'd go, oh, hell no. She goes, yeah. So we gave up our apartment, our job, put everything in storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And we hit the road. And she and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. That's a long time. Seven years and change. And worked with and lived with, because back then they used to put us up in three-bedroom condos called the Comedy Condo. Foxworthy, Ellen, Rosie, Dana Carvey, Adam Sandler, um, Brad Garrett. You know, anybody who's anybody nowadays, I probably worked on the road with them. Kevin Jane, Dennis Miller. So we were on the road, then I did a little radio, and then I got into the corporate side of comedy because my comedy is always clean. And, the, you know, the after dinner, after lunch speaking pays a lot better. Mm-hmm. Did that till the first recession. Business dropped off 80%. We lost everything in a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like, literally. Uh, spoiler alert for the listeners, I did not pull the trigger, uh, which always gets a nervous laugh. I followed up with... True story. Mm-hmm. One of my friends heard me speak and never heard had never heard me say I didn't pull the trigger. So he comes up after the keynote and he goes, hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> anyway, that gets a much bigger laugh. And that's where the mental health comedy is. It's not jokes about depression and thoughts of suicide. It's funny personal anecdotes, yeah. things that have happened to me, things people said to me, things like that. You know, that that's where the, because they call it comic relief for a reason. Mm-hmm. If you have something serious to tell somebody and then you give them a little comic relief, they're much more prepared mentally for the next piece of serious business. So I think that's why it's effective. And, you know, let's face it. Who would you rather listen to for 45 to 60 minutes on mental health, a clinician or a comedian? That's very true. I, I would probably choose the comedian. Yeah. And people ask me, does being a stand-up comedian hold you back from getting bookings? Do people avoid you? Because, you know, you got it backwards. They want the lived experience. Mm-hmm. They want the education, you know, signs and symptoms, depression, thoughts of suicide. And, and they appreciate the well-placed organic humor. So after surviving a near suicide attempt, when the speaking business came back, the people that had been booking me said, look, Frank, we love you. But we can't pay you that kind of money just to be funny. You got to teach the audience something. Mm. I thought, what in the world have I got to teach anybody? And then it hit me. Uh, my family history, it's uh, generational depression and suicide. Grandmother died by suicide. Mom found her. Great aunt died by suicide. Mom and I found her. I was four years old. I screamed for days. And my mother committed suicide slowly. And, of course, I had a close call. And I thought, you know, I, I believe the topic for my keynote picked me. So I started speaking on suicide prevention. And I had other speeches that I was doing in marketing. But 2018, January 1st, I thought, I'm done. I am a suicide prevention speaker, period, paragraph. Corporations, associations, colleges, three three college students a day die by suicide in the U.S. And that was before COVID. So I'm sure the rate's probably higher now. So that's how I got to be a speaker. And I had to rebrand because I've been a funny guy for 25 years. So my wife suggested to do a TEDx talk. And I said famously, what's TEDx talk? <laughs> and yeah, just that by chance that week, I got an invitation from one in Vancouver, British Columbia and to submit. And so I submitted and they liked the idea and I got booked on my first application. That talk called a matter of laugh or death, matter of laugh or death 
allowed me to show all the meeting planners that I could talk about something super serious. Yeah. And then from that talk, two other talks called me and said, do you have any more mental health ideas? I said, I do have two. So I did two more at their request. And then I got my fourth one and fifth one. And I just got my sixth one um, coming up in June. It's amazing because uh, I saw your first one. And that was one of the reasons because there aren't a lot of people who speak on suicide prevention. None that I know of that are comedians outside of you. And I yeah. thought you handled the topic so poignantly, so so naturally that it, it made me think. And, you know, I we talked about this before we went live that I wanted to talk about the thing that nobody's talking about. And oh, yeah, Lord. Nobody's talking about it. Uh, but the numbers are still going up. In 2016, I saw a sad statistic that a student every hour in India was dying of, by suicide. And I know that's numbers probably even worse, maybe. I don't know. It's, it, nobody talks about it. So I just don't know. And so I was like, who can I get to talk about this topic sensitively and openly to, to see it? And so we can kind of learn what it's about. I don't think it's going to be the same for everyone, but you know, no. what are the signs? And so why is this important? How did this kind of become such a unspoken of disease of sorts? I think it's sort of like alcoholism and drug addiction were 75 years ago. There's a reason that AA is, you know, began as anonymous because with alcohol consumption, overconsumption, there was a feeling you had a character flaw. Um, you know, you weren't strong enough. You it was a moral failing. And I think mental illness is still thought of like that in some quarters. You know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Real men don't, you know, big boys don't cry. That's what right. I was taught in the South when I grew up. So what I discovered when I was getting ready for my first TED Talk was, even though at that time, nine people, I'm sorry, at that time, one person in the U.S. died every nine minutes by suicide. It's worse now. But I realized nobody talks about it. I mean, that's, you know. It's crazy and so but what I also found was if you bring it up, everybody's got a story. I was amazed. People told me things that I'm sure they hadn't told their relatives or perhaps their spouse. I'm on a uh, ship working doing stand-up comedy mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. No, it was 2014, right before my first TEDx. And I'm in the Lido buffet and I can't find a seat. And I look over, there's a woman and there's an empty chair at her table. And I point, she nods, I sit. She goes, hey, are you the comedian? I said, hey, did you enjoy the show? She goes, I did. I said, then I'm the comedian. She goes, what would you have said if I told you I hated it? They say I look a lot like him. <laughs> so, which as you, is cruise comedy all you do? And I, at the time, I was only doing it maybe a dozen weeks a year. I said, no, I'm a public speaker. And if you don't mind me bragging, I just nailed down a TED Talk, my first one. She goes, I love TED Talks. What's the topic? Well, I'd had this conversation many times. Mm -hmm. And I thought I knew what was coming. So I said, depression and suicide started to count down in my head three two one she goes i tried to kill myself twice we have literally just met called me on stage but this is the first time we've spoken and she just told me she tried to kill herself twice she said first time in college kind of half-hearted not a big deal second time frank i graduated from college i graduated from medical school i had the knowledge had the equipment had the, had the iv started in my ankle to one hand syringe and the other getting ready to load it up phone rings so she's thinking, do I answer it? Uh, maybe I better because it might be someone who would worry and come over and interrupt. Yeah. So she picks up the phone, her 13-year-old son. 
She goes, I don't know if you heard something in my voice or had a premonition, but he said, mom, don't do anything. So I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day because I, I knew he would feel guilty the rest of his life. Sure. Wasn't there something he could do or say? And there are things you can do. There are things you can say. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. I said, well, how old is he now? She goes, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? She goes, and this became the theme of my TEDx. How do you start that conversation? How do Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's my job. My, my, oftentimes when I go in, the whoever hired me says, look, we just brought you in here simply to start the conversation on suicide. So I, because if, if I start it, then it gives people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination. Right. I do a general Q&A at the end. And I say, look, if you got a question or story you want to share and don't want to share it in front of everybody, I'll just hang out until everybody, you know, until I've seen everybody. And sometimes there's two people, sometimes there's eight with a question about themselves or a loved one or a story to share or, you know, something. So it's, it's, here's the good news, by the way. Eight out of 10 people who are suicidal in the U.S., are ambivalent they're not sure nine out of ten in the last week leading up to an attempt to give hints so that tells me that eight out of ten are ambivalent that means they want somebody to step in you know see something hear something and say something right nine out of ten give hints that they're going to do something so that tells me they want somebody to notice to pick up on the hint and intervene so that's that's the good news. Anybody anybody can save a life. Anybody can stop a suicide. You do not have to be a clinician. It, it's the most preventable cause of death on the planet. That's reassuring to hear. And I think one of the reasons I wanted you on here was, what can we do? Like, how, how can you see those hints? How can you be aware? Just like you said that um, the son probably heard something in her voice. Mm -hmm. Not even sure. Is there a way for us to kind of have a radar out or open? For those things. Yes. Um, he did what I recommend the people I speak to do. If, you're, if your gut tells you there's something wrong, believe it. You may have picked up some information you're not consciously aware of. So, you know, if, if you walk by somebody and you think something's wrong, is he depressed? Turn around and go back and ask him. Flat out ask him, are you depressed? But if, if they won't tell you, let me give you some signs and symptoms of depression. Eat too much, can't eat. Sleep too much, can't sleep. Has difficulty getting out of bed in the morning, rallies in the afternoon. Let's their personal hygiene go. That's a big one. You can even notice that on Zoom. So what do you say to somebody who is admitting they're depressed or you believe they're depressed? Well, you don't say pull yourself up by your bootstraps. What you do say is I'm here for you and I mean it. I know you're not lazy, crazy, or self-absorbed. I know that depression is a mental illness. That with time and treatment, things will get better. I'll take the time, help you get the treatment and mean it. And then you have to ask them this question. It's tough. I have, tough, I have trouble with this for myself. Flat out ask them, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. And if you can't ask it, find somebody who can. And if they say yes, then say, what is your plan? And if it's detailed, you need to get them on the phone with a suicide prevention hotline. Or for younger people, there's a text line. You can text the word help or connect to 741-741. Now, let's say the suicide plan is not particularly detailed. They're having thoughts, but they haven't chosen time, place, method. My next question then is, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say no, I say, okay, well, tell me why not. Mm. Now, let's say they're not forthcoming about their thoughts. How would you know they're thinking about suicide? Well, 
talking about death and dying, catch them Googling death and dying. Death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork or their music or their writing. They're getting their affairs in order, giving away pets. That's a big one. And, uh, of course, acquiring the means, whether it's a gun or a stockpiling medication. And there's a counterintuitive one that's very dangerous. They've been depressed forever, and now they're happy beyond measure for no apparent reason. You're happy because they're happy. However, they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is coming to an end. What a lot of people don't understand about suicide is, most often, it is not about killing yourself. It is about simply ending the pain. And that's the only way people feel they can do it. Wow. That... So Frank, there was a, um, you have some helpful materials on your website, by the way, that I, I thought were enlightening. One of them speaks towards social media and how social media plays an impact today, I guess, in comparison to probably what, 20 years ago when there wasn't oh, Instagram yeah. and all that. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how social media has an impact on mental health and suicide, if at all, so that you can kind of understand the correlation? Well, for a lot of young people, the number of likes, shares, connections, whatever, is a metric. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that metric when I was in, you know. Uh, yeah. You were a big deal if you were the high school football quarterback or the star soccer player or the cheerleader. Mm-hmm. That was that was the metric. Nowadays, it's how many, I said, how many likes, how many shares, how many connections, how many comments. And that that plus the fact that most people put a, up a highlight reel of their life, you know, all the highlights. The curated so list. That everybody is just cranking. Mm-hmm. And... There was a study that high school students are spending 40% less time, high school women, young women, spending 40% less time face-to-face with their classmates than in 2012. Wow. You know, they're not going to the mall to hang out. They're not going to, this is pre-COVID. This is not, nothing to do with COVID. Sure. They're spending that, that 40% of the time in their house, bedroom, car, on their smartphone. Yeah, there's a great special on Netflix. Um, oh, yes. Um, Social Dilemma. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, the people, the people behind those platforms are brilliant. I mean, they use the, they use some of the same technology they use in Las Vegas to keep you pulling the slot machine handle. You check your phone, check your phone, check your phone, check your phone. Oh, I got a like. It's like a slot machine. Pull it, pull it, pull it. Ding, 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 ding. It's variable reinforcement. So the odds are stacked against you that you know, it, I believe it's something of an addiction. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm guilty of it as much as anybody else. I mean, if I can't find my phone, dear God. <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. I mean, I was on TikTok for a little bit, not just watching. It started at eight o'clock. And the next thing I know, it was 930. And I was like, what happened? Where did where did the time go? And I actually took TikTok off my phone because I was like, I I don't know how that happened. It was a little scary, actually, because it was like blink. And then. Yeah, into a fugue state and then back out. Yeah. 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 So and and, you know, trolls. Uh, Cyberbullying. I, I, I'm 64, so I, I could never understand how could you be bullied online. Well, I, I did what some people consider a mistake when I came back from Cambodia at the beginning of the pandemic. I was working a cruise ship. None of our passengers or crew ever had it, but everybody thought I did. And I came back to the U.S. and they thought I came back dragging the virus, you know, mm-hmm. super spreader event. So the trolls came after me and I had to change our home phone number and deactivate three social media accounts. And I realized how serious a thing it is, what a real thing it is. And those people that came after me, I'll never see them. But if you're in high school, it's your classmates are coming after you. You're going to see them day after day after day. I'm not sure I could live with that. 
Now, and you talk about something as serious as COVID and, and that, but it doesn't take a lot for a troll to come out on social media, oh. Twitter itself, right? I mean, you say the wrong thing about a TV show or your favorite color or your opinion on something and you can get dragged from here and back. Yeah. And you know, they, they, the payoff is that they, if they drag you down, they move up mm-hmm. and the media companies it's not in their interest to, to, for example, when I came back from Cambodia, every headline in every newspaper said comedian jumps quarantine. Well, I was never quarantined. I made that very clear. We, nobody ever had it. Right. But quarantine gets clicks and eyeballs. Quarantine sells newspapers. So all the media companies, they, they exacerbate the problem by using the word quarantine. So they do that. The trolls see it. They share it. And it just, it, it's a ripple effect that just keeps blowing up. Yeah, I never, I, I have a whole, yeah, new respect for teenagers for surviving all that. Yeah. Well, to your point, though, not a lot of people survive it unscathed. No. That's the sad part. Is there anything that we can do about that, though, do you think? Yeah, I think, I believe that, that cell phones should be banned from school, school days. I think you should put it in your locker at the beginning of the day and you can take it out at the end. And the student said to me, what if there's an active shooter? I said, well, you know, when I was in high school, we had a, a um, PA system, morning announcements, afternoon announcements. Yeah. I mean, you can get on there and go, oh, lock it down. What if my parents need to see me? There are young people working in the office who can carry a note to your class. <laughs> your, don't forget your orthodontist appointment. You know, I'm, so I think, and I think that. It was possible before. Oh, Adults need to take responsibility. You need to say, look, all the, all the uh, smart devices are plugged into this power strip in our bedroom at 7 p.m., mm. including ours. And they don't come out of the power strip until 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. And we've turned the router off in the house, so there's no Wi-Fi in the house. So I, I think the parents need to take responsibility and lead by example, as it were. To um, Yeah, but, you know, it, social media is a tool. Like any tool can be used for good. Yeah be used for evil that's probably an apt description for it because it's the evil that ends up having the longer lasting impact of what's happening i mean yeah one of my um, fellow speakers daughter has mental health issues mm-hmm. she's gonna go skiing with her mom so she tweeted out she's going skiing and i think three tweets came back you too fat to ski you don't know how to ski i can't remember what the third one was but her mother came upstairs and found her with her wrists cut and bleeding out Three tweets. I mean, that's how powerful yeah. it can be. Yeah. So with with everything that's happening and right now and with there being such a lack of conversation around it, why do you think people aren't talking about it? Well, there's a stigma attached. People who have it, but you, there's a stigma to mental health issues, mental right. illness, stigma, separate one to suicidal thoughts. And neuronormal people don't talk about it generally, I think, because... A, they don't, don't know what to say, or B, they don't want to say the wrong thing. Like one of the, my mother would say, you just don't talk about that in polite society. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you, I actually wasn't sure even about doing this episode because I was afraid of, by talking about it, I would be putting it in someone's head. Oh, my favorite myth. Yeah, that's, that's a, a, an urban legend, I guess, mm-hmm. that you should never mention the S word in front of somebody who is thinking about, uh, is depressed. Which and I love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. Yeah. Suicide, what a great idea. Why didn't I think of that? Trust me, 
it's crossed their mind. Mm. As a matter of fact, the reverse is true. You need to mention it. If you suspect that is the case, Mm -hmm. you need to say, are you having thoughts of suicide? You're not going to push them over the edge with that. Your chances are eight out of 10 or nine out of you may step in and save them. So it's imperative that you speak out. And like I said, if you can't say, if you can't ask that question, are you having thoughts of suicide? Find somebody who can. And I, I'm learning more and more how important this is. And one of the things I think about, and you talked about not talking about it in polite society, but I think there's also something culturally where yes. you can't suicide. Don't talk about it. But whereas I'm like, but it's happening. It's ha- yeah. so there's something wrong with it. Is there um, an increased number of, of suicides for different cultures? Yes. And part of the problem is that we talked about maybe off the air is that in certain cultures, mm. it's talking about it is discouraged. My co-host on one of my podcasts is from Pakistan or folks from Pakistan. And they were really upset because she, I, I helped her get a TEDx talk and she talked about her mental illness and three suicide attempts. Mm. And her parents said, we don't talk about that in our community. And she said, that's all the more reason I should be because I'm not, trust me, I'm not the only one out there. So she's leading the parade, hopefully giving other people cover to come out. And same with Native Americans, Alaskan Americans, Hispanics. I've met several Latinas and one was living with depression. I said, did you tell your mom or dad? She goes, I told my mom. Mm -hmm. Well, what'd your mom say? Well, you know, they're from Mexico. And when my mom was my age, she was living in a hut with a dirt floor. And so when I told her I was depressed, she said, what do you have to be depressed about? When I was your age, I was living in a hut with a dirt floor. You got everything. We made sure I worked two jobs so you would have everything. What do you, how could you be depressed? What a lot of normal people, neuronormal, don't understand depression is not always situational. Oftentimes I've been most depressed at the best times in my life. It's a cycle with a, like a wheel with a flat spot. It just keeps, it comes around every now and then. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I've been depressed when I was, things were bad, but I've also been depressed when things were spectacular. So, but a lot of people don't, you know, understanding i think there are a lot of situational depression with covid in the pandemic because you have otherwise normal people whose lives have been thrown into chaos and the uncertainty is just depressing i think the other thing is is that people don't realize or it's hard to accept that like if you get a mental illness and i think you talked about this in the beginning how you got to man up you're not strong enough and, and all those things right but i i think people don't realize is that mental health illness is just that an illness and yes. sometimes there's nothing you can do to stop it or, or is there? Well, in my case, it's genetic. It runs in my family, my grandmother, my great aunt, me. I'm more nuts in my family than a squirrel turd. And so it's just the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. But you can treat it yeah. with time and treatment. And I believe my third TED Talk was mental with benefits. The evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Because I kept meeting people who were multi-talented. Singers, dancers, comedians, writers, artists. And all of them have a mental illness. So it seems, and in my TEDx, I said, look, what if mental illness is not a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? Mm-hmm. What if those of us with mental illness have something Malcolm Gladwell calls such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage? You never wish it on anybody. Right. But the disability comes with certain abilities. And it kept repeating. I thought it can't be an accident. This is repeating like that. Yeah. And there's a laundry list of celebrities and notable people that have an sure. issue from dyslexia to ADD to bipolar, to depression. So 
And if each and every one of them would speak out, and many do, that would help. Yeah, the the cultural, well, uh, transgender youth have a 40% of transgender youth seriously consider suicide, which is 10 times the rate of just average youth. 10 times. Yeah. 40%. That's... It's it's heartbreaking, and, and you're right. I mean, we've lost some of the greats, like Robin Williams. Yep. Right through, and it's only afterwards because he puts such a strong or smile on his face all the time. Yeah. And he's self-medicated with drugs and alcohol. He's very upfront about that, but he never mentioned, never heard him once mention that he believed he was living with bipolar disorder. Mm-mm. Everything else in his life is an open book. Well, part of the problem was. If you're going to make a movie, the movie production company buys a life insurance policy. And if you tell the life insurance agent, oh, yeah, I've had thoughts of suicide. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm bipolar. You might not get the life insurance policy. So no movie. So people are, you know, I mean, drugs and alcohol, drug and alcohol addiction in, in Hollywood is like a resume item. You know, it's a best-selling memoir. But mental illness? There's still ways to go. But to your point, there are more people showing up as mental health advocates. I know um, Chris Wood, Bob Morley, Kyler Lee speak mm-hmm. about that and try to help promote it. And people like you going around and talking about it and sharing your experiences, the lived experience and whatnot. And it, it's helping, I think, bring awareness. But there's, it's, it feels like there's so much more and such a long way to go. Oh, yeah. And there are groups that I've approached about speaking on suicide prevention that are in the top 10 lists of occupations, highest at risk for suicide. Mm. I approached some farmers groups, ag groups. And one of the farm bureaus said to me, I can't believe you got the nerve to call here and talk about that. I said, you're in the top five, top five, what top five at risk occupations for suicide. You got, you got people working by themselves, very isolated, yeah. subject to the weather and finances, you know, and they got their head in the sand. Hopefully they'll come around. So, so what are the top five? Construction, excavation, mining, fishing, farming, forestry is number six. Then the white collar occupations, veterinarian, physician, dentist, first responders. Lawyers? Lawyers. I don't think they're in the top 10, although I got a call from the South Palm Beach Bar Association to do a suicide prevention CE, you know, continuing ed for them. Yeah. It's something they, they had not had anybody in to talk about, but they thought, you know, maybe now's the time. Well, I went to law school and that was one of the conversations was that lawyers in the legal profession, it was, it was up and coming. The numbers were going up. And so yeah. I hopefully we'll never hit the top 10, but the fact that it's there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I'm delighted. I've, I've wanted to get into, I wanted to get into the law, uh, you know, and work with attorneys on that. Sure. I just needed a a way in and I'm hoping uh, I think Palm South Palm Beach I think is gonna rope in several other county associations for the it's gonna be a Zoom. Yeah. So they you know get get large numbers and they said like we'll recommend you to the state and and national associations because they think it really needs to be talked about. It it absolutely does. I mean and and that's one of the reasons why we're taking such a turn with that but with this episode. But I think you know the other thing I wanted to ask you is you know, a lot of what we're focusing on are numbers in the U.S. What is the suicide rate like outside of this country? I heard the other day that somebody dies in the world every 40 seconds. What? Yeah. From suicide? Yeah. In the world at large. Yep. 
I didn't see that stat coming at all. No. Well, and <laughs> one of my best showcase performances, I decided to do away with PowerPoint. I had 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And at the time, one person died in the U.S. of suicide every 15 minutes. So it was perfect. So I got a countdown timer. It was kind of like on a bomb, you know, yeah, red sure. you see it on, on black. Show. And set it at 15 minutes. And so as soon as my foot hit the stage, the tech starts the clock. Mm-hmm. And so they're watching the clocks count down. And I said, every year in the United States, 47,000 people die by suicide. That's one every 15 minutes. That means at this moment, someplace in this country, someone in my tribe, and I turn to look at the clock and say, has less than 15 minutes to live. And man, they're looking at the clock. They're looking at me. They're looking at the clock. They're looking they're wondering, am I going to let him die? And so with about 30 seconds to go, I said, the good news is you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here. And that is starting the conversation and the tech in the back is prepared for this. And I said, before their time runs out and he hits stop and it stops in seven seconds. And they, I mean, they shot to their feet, they're crying, they're clapping. Oh my God. You know, with the yeah. drama, there's somebody, sure. you know, all of a sudden you can, you're watching somebody's life countdown. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it had the effect I had anticipated. That's awesome. That That's fantastic. And hopefully you guys, as you're listening to this, you see why it's so important to start and have these conversations, but it's going to take practice. It's going to take talking about something. I mean, I know I was talking to my dad before we got on and I was like, he was like, ready for your interview. I was like, yeah, this one's a little bit different. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous. I got to admit, um, <laughs> I don't want to say the wrong thing. I, yeah, of course you would. You know, and, and and I think a lot of us fear that when talking about suicide, just saying the word, you guys are like, oh, she said it again. You know, oh, yeah, suicide, we got to talk about it. But I was so nervous because, like, that myth. What other myths are there? Oh, well, we've covered another one, which is people say, why did he want to kill himself? Well, probably didn't want to kill himself. Probably just wanted to end the pain. Mm-hmm. I had a heart attack in the woods, in the dogs, by myself. I had T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service, and always gets to laugh. <laughs> and if I had been in a bad place that day, mm-hmm. I could have sat down on the trail, let the heart attack run its course, and nobody would, nobody but the dogs would know that I chose to right. die. It would just look like a heart attack. And I think people think folks with depression thought suicide 24-7, 365. And that's not true. I have many more good days than bad. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to live. I, I I had to get the dogs back in the car because there's a busy road short, you know, not far from where the car is parked. Mm-hmm. And if I died on the way down, they'd be out there, you know, with the big log trucks going by. That'd be so. My one goal in life at that point was to get the dogs inside the car, the door shut. If I dropped dead, then that's fine. Fortunately, I made it home, called the ambulance. They took me to the hospital. And spoiler alert, I survived. But that's another, you know, people think if you're depressed, it's all the time. People think, you know, you could just choose joy. I've heard that more than once. I go, unless you're talking about dishwashing liquid, I'm out of luck. Because I don't you think if I could choose joy, I would have done it four decades ago? I mean. Why didn't I think of that? Exactly. Choose joy. Some people think it'll pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, and for some people, it's possible. You know, I'm not sure cure is the right word. Well, that's not true. They're now experimenting with magic mushroom psilocybin, psychedelics. 
And there is promising research for PTSD, depression, and addiction with psilocybin, magic mushrooms. And they believe that in the case of depression, PTSD, and addiction, it may not just be a patch. It may be a fix. In other words, it may rewire wow. the brain. So that it may be possible someday for people to you know, be cured of some things. But it's more of a chronic illness. You, know, you live with it. But you, what, I think what I heard you say earlier was it's at least treatable if you get help. Yeah. Okay. Some, some conditions are more difficult to treat than others. Sure. Bipolar is very, bipolar disorder is difficult because in the, in the early, early stages of the manic phase, you're very productive. Don't have to sleep much, don't have to eat much. Mm-hmm. And then below that phase is the hypomanic phase, which is all the best things in mania without the delusions and, you know, and, and you're, you're charismatic, you're energetic, you're taking inspired risks and when they pay off, you look like a genius. Uh, but then there's the depressive, and if you're not medicated and slip in the depressed, the depressive state of bipolar is actually more dangerous in terms of suicide than just run the mill depression. So, but it's difficult to find the right altitude, medicine, you know, to hold the person at the right altitude with that particular disorder. And here's a tip for your listeners: if you're on a psychotropic, the antidepressant, mm-hmm. normally one third of the people love that medicine. One third think it's okay. The other third, side effects horrible. Never do it again. So one out of three people, it works. The other two, not so much. There's now a DNA cheek swab test. They can take your DNA and match it to the antidepressant they think would work best with your metabolism. So it, it, it dials in so there's less experimentation going on, you know, going on than tapering off, going on than tapering off. Right. So if, I, if, my, if whatever they gave me first didn't work, I'd get it's a couple hundred bucks. Most insurances pay for it. I'd get a cheek swab test to figure out which antidepressant works best with my personal metabolism. Guys, I hope you're listening to this. I mean, it sounds like uh, medicine and medical science has come a long way to, to help yeah. with these things. And we're going to put some links into the episode show notes so you can get some help if you need it. Uh, talk to someone. We want to provide some resources for that as well. So, Frank. Yeah, and every keynote, I give out my phone number, my cell number. I put it up on the screen. I go, look, here's the deal. You're suicidal. Call the hotline. Just having a really bad day, call a crazy person. Here's my cell number. And you know, a woman called this morning. She's been married 18 years. Mm-hmm. Her husband, and we believe from her description, has bipolar, lives with bipolar disorder. You know, highs and lows. Self-medicating of booze and alcohol. When he's manic, he's taking horrible risks, dangerous behavior, infidelity. Um, and she's she's torn up because she feels like there must be something she can do for him. Mm-hmm. She's tried and she's thought of everything, tried everything 18 years. I go, you know, I think you stuck around eight years too long. Mm-hmm. You've done everything you possibly can. I know you love them. I know it's still death to you apart, but at some point you got to save yourself. If they're not willing to take help, if they're not willing to do their part. You know, I love you. As my mom used to say, when I did something stupid, I go, do you love me? Oh, honey, I'll always love you. I don't like you much right now. So the, I said to her, just tell him, you know, you're there for him. You, he can call anytime, but it's just this, you know, the situation I've got to, you know, for my own mental health, I've got to pull back. Yeah. And she was feeling terribly guilty about that. She, you know, she heard it from civilians and from clinicians. She never heard it from a crazy person. So that's why she <laughs> called me. 
She goes, you know, Frank, I just need that last perspective. Somebody who lives that every day. Yeah. I said, no, honey, save yourself. 18 years is plenty. Frank, there's so much knowledge you've dropped on us and, and I'm sure you could give us more, but you know, time is of the essence. Sure. What is, what is one thing you would share with these guys as last words? Start the conversation. Silence kills. Love it. Love it. And hopefully today, you guys, you can see we're trying to start that conversation. So keep it going. Don't let it stop you. Thank you, Frank, for coming on the show and talking about this with us. And there you have it, guys. That was Frank King sharing his knowledge and wisdom on suicide prevention. And I learned a bunch. I learned a lot about what we can do to help, the signs to look for. You can find those things in the show notes. Rewatch this episode if you need to re-listen to the episode or check out the show notes for more information about that. We're also going to include links to the suicide prevention hotline in the U.S. I apologize, guys. I don't have resources in all the countries, but for the U.S. in particular, we are going to provide resources that will hopefully help you and, and hopefully that we can start having these conversations. We need to talk about suicide more openly just as much as we need to talk about mental health more openly. Right, because it does affect a lot of people, including entrepreneurs, including doctors, dentists, lawyers, and including dream chasers. And that's fine. That's okay. Let's just get you help if you need it. All right. So, dream chasers, be sure to check out the show notes over on the show notes page at amyj21.com/episode245. That's episode two four five. Until next time, remember: don't stop, keep chasing. Thank you so much for listening to Chasing Dreams. Amy would love to connect with you and hear all about your pursuit of chasing your dreams. Connect with her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram via at Chasing Dreams HQ. Or you can find Amy on Twitter at AmyJ21. That's aimeej one Be sure to visit headquarters over at ChasingDreamsHQ.com for more inspiration, motivation, and resources to help with your own dream chase. We hope you'll join Amy next week. And until then, keep chasing.